Is there room in our lives for visions, for things we cannot explain? Have we closed our minds to truth that doesn't fit our rational categories? Can you remember a time when you entered the presence of the holy in your life? Perhaps you've never told anybody about it. Have you had a mountaintop experience like Peter and the others? I have a special seat or space on our screened-in porch where I read the daily office or morning prayer. Obviously, I'm only in this space from spring through fall. (laughs) I am usually out there very early morning. Because we live outside the city and are surrounded by trees and nature in general, the screen porch has become a sacred place for me. No one else is around. It is quiet except for birds and animals and the running water. One morning as I read and prayed, my eyes were drawn unexpectedly to the swing hanging adjacent to where I sit. It was moving as if someone was swinging. I knew without a doubt that God's holy presence was with me on the porch. I believe it. I might try to dismiss it as a breeze coming through, but it was as still that morning as any summer morning at sunrise. I might dismiss it as a trick of the mind or eyes. It wasn't. I was reassured that God was present. I'm willing to bet that a lot of you have had a Holy Presence experience, a lot of them more dramatic than mine. The transfiguration story from Mark 9 is a story we often try to explain away. What happened on that mountain when Jesus went to pray with Peter, James, and John? Why did Jesus' clothing become dazzling white? How could Moses and Elijah be there when they lived so long ago? Was this a dream? Well, how did all three disciples have the same dream? Transfiguration Sunday by description is confusing. Its name, after all, is not a word that we use. It's a day that in some ways culminates epiphany, remember all the bright, shining clothes and voice from heaven, and introduces us to Lent. Jesus zeroed in on the cross as they left the mountain and previews Easter, white clothes and glory again. Transfiguration Sunday marks an in-between space between Epiphany, which began with the journey of the Magi, and Lent, which begins Jesus' journey to the cross. Transfiguration literally means to change figure or form. Jesus' appearance was changed. To his terrified disciples, Jesus must have looked like an angel. Some scholars say this is Mark's resurrection story, the only resurrection picture we have in this gospel because the risen Jesus doesn't appear at the end of Mark's story. But here on the mountain, Jesus appears in blazing light in a dreamlike space talking with those who lived centuries before. If there's any scene short of the crucifixion that defies easy interpretation and serves to rock the world of those who witnessed it, it's this one. 
Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain with him, and there he is changed, transfigured, dramatically before their eyes. Mark seems to struggle to find vocabulary to do justice to what has happened. Jesus' clothes, he reports, became dazzling white, adding, like no one on earth could make them. And if this isn't enough, Jesus is then joined by two figures from the past, Moses and Elijah, possibly representing the law and the prophets, and in this sense, the heart and essence of Israel's history. What do you do if this happens to you? Well, Peter doesn't know, but his offer to build booths or tents isn't quite as odd or misplaced as it may initially seem. For elements of the Jewish tradition associated the day of the Lord, that time when God would draw history to its climax and defeat Israel's enemies with the festival of booths mentioned in Zechariah. And so Peter, taking the appearance of Moses and Elijah as the one for this event, offers to build them booths. Peter, you see, has taken this momentous encounter with God's prophets and fit it into a pre-existing narrative and religious framework that helps him make sense of the otherwise inexplicable and somewhat terrifying scene. Yet by doing so, he comes dangerously close to missing an encounter with God. For just after he stops speaking, almost interrupting him, in fact, a voice from heaven both announces and commands, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Peter wants to fit what is happening into a plan, but God invites him instead to experience the wonder and mystery of Jesus. I wonder how often we do the same. We desperately want an encounter with God, some sense that we are not alone, that there is something more than what we can see and touch. And yet in those very moments that God draws near, we find ourselves afraid unsure and feeling suddenly very out of control. So we try to control our experience of the holy by fitting it into a plan. Why is this? I suspect that as much as we want an encounter with God, we simultaneously fear the presence of God because we fear being changed, being transformed. What we have, who we are, may not be everything we want, but at least we know it are used to it. We've built a relatively orderly life around it. And so when God comes, perhaps not in a transfigured as, uh, scene as dramatic as Mark describes, but in the ordinary hopes and encounters and tragedies of our everyday life, when God comes and unsettles this orderly life that we have, we try to put these disruptive experiences back into line by cramming them into a plan. Even on all kinds of days when the disciples and Jesus were by no means having a mountaintop experience and when dazzling garments, whiter than white, were nowhere to be seen, even then, when Jesus smiled kindly at lepers, looked pain to see a sinner being shunned by the temple establishment, or looked hopeful after telling a hurting prostitute to go in peace, because her sins were forgiven. There was a sense in which the disciples were seeing the face of the divine transfigured in also those ordinary moments. They were seeing hints of glory, 
They were seeing true God of true God, full of grace and truth. I believe that we want to experience transfiguration here and now, regardless of the terminology we use. In the end, we want a sense of the transcendent, the spiritual, the holy, something outside of ourselves that is the cause for awe and wonder. That's what Peter wanted, right? I don't think he wanted to keep Jesus and his friends in tents forever. Peter wanted to encapsulate the experience. He wanted to capture the feeling. Transfiguration matters, it seems. It's not just a convenient event to mark the Sunday that bridges Epiphany and Lent. It's not just a bizarre story that might cause some Christian embarrassment. We need transfiguration. What if we take Jesus out of the picture? Then we realize that this story is not just Jesus' revelation of his glory, but the fact that what we wish for is our own sense of glory. Not in a narcissist, look-at-me kind of way, but a recognition of the deep human need for change, makeover, or metamorphosis. We need transfiguration as much as Jesus needed to be transfigured. Liturgically, biblically, the transfiguration is a turning point, a transition from one way of seeing Jesus to another. It's not just about securing the Jesus of the future or holding on to the Jesus of the past, but points to the real human struggle with change, with transformation. Transformation is hard. Change is hard. It's easier to stay the same. Stay the course. Convince yourself that when you've, what you've always known is satisfactory and sufficient, even when you have glimpsed what could be. So we just sit. We wait. For what? The right time? The right place? All of our questions answered? Everything figured out? All of our proverbial ducks in a row? This is why transfiguration is so special. It's really spectacular. It just shows up. There is no right time. It just happens. Now what? No amount of planning can predict the right kind of change. No amount of preparation can prepare you for an altered reality or an altered perspective. No amount of strategizing can make you ready for a transfiguration to be truly a transfiguration. I think Peter's issue is the realization that if Jesus changes, then Peter will be changed as well. I cannot be the same. I will also be transfigured, transformed, and maybe I don't want that. So let's pitch some tents, keep things the way they are, hunker down and ride it out. Maybe the whole thing will just pass by. I can come out of my tent and all will still be the same. Jesus will be the same. I will be the same. Rather than blame Peter for his short-sightedness, maybe we admit our own. I'm guessing that not much about human nature has changed in 2,000 years since Jesus' ministry. Transfiguration means exposure. I mean, look at Jesus. You can't miss him. Vulnerability is less comfortable, but it seems absolutely essential for life and thus for a life of faith. At least Jesus seems to think so. When we exchange vulnerability for certainty, all we do is live the lie that authenticity does not matter. 
and that the truth of who we are can be hidden by our denominational structures, doctrinal commitments, and dogmatic assertiveness. Our tents are secured, pounding stake by stake into the ground. Transfiguration will rip our tents into shreds. Because at the heart of the matter is that transfiguration not only signals change, but alters life's direction. It certainly did for Jesus. And when that happens, well, no tent in the world is going to give you the security you think you want or need. Because when we shore up the shelters that protect us from harm, we also run the risk of keeping out that which is so very, very good. Jesus came back down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and by doing so, reminds us that we don't have to hide the hard parts of our lives from the God who knows us through Jesus. He is with us and for us through thick and thin and through life and death. So if I trust the mercy of the one who came down the mountain, the one who entered the dark places of the world and still seeks out the dark places of my life, perhaps I will be honest enough to name what is broken and hurting in my life and world and maybe fear it a little less. I pray that you and I can be open to transfiguration in our lives. God's presence is real and is with us. John Ames, who's the older preacher and central character of Marilyn Robinson's Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, said this, Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. You don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who would have the courage to